Hello everyone, Sam here, and welcome to the third and final part of our mini-series of the Pint of Science podcast in collaboration with BitBio, a company on the cutting edge of mass-producing human cells for medical therapeutic use. In this episode, we're chatting to Dr. Rami Ibrahim, BitBio's chief medical officer. Rami is a leading immuno-oncologist, that's someone who studies cancer and the immune system to you and me, and he's been at the heart of this emerging field, helping to develop several breakthrough therapies, both in the academic and pharmaceutical worlds. He's served as the Vice President of Clinical Development for Immuno-Oncology at AstraZeneca, and as a member of the Bristol Myers Squibb Immuno-Oncology Programme. There's a mouthful. He also sits on the board at the Parker Institute of Cancer Immunotherapy and has recently joined BitBio to help pioneer the use of their technologies in medical applications. So pour a drink of your choice and settle in for a pint of science with Dr. Rami Ibrahim. Rami, first off, your background is in immuno-oncology. So what is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, so actually my background is in medical uh, oncology. And, and like many people uh, years ago, um, I was curious to understand what is the role of the immune system uh, when it comes to uh, cancer care. Um, and as a medical oncologist, actually, we were not big fans of the... Um, of the immune system, uh, because for us, uh, when patients receive uh, treatment at that time, which was uh, primarily chemotherapy, uh, their immune cell count uh, drops, which prevents us from continuing to give them chemotherapy. Um, so just from that angle, um, I did not really um, like the idea that the, the dropping the immune uh, cell count was the reason why we're not able to give patients chemotherapy uh, or even radiation therapy uh, for that matter. But then the more I started to uh, learn about the uh, power of the immune system, uh, the more I became a, a fan. And then years later, um, now I'm a big believer that the um, immune system uh, plays uh, really a key role, not just in cancer, but in many other um, diseases that we are dealing with. So for back to your question about immune oncology, uh, so basically immune oncology is, is a new or relatively new area uh, that emerged, I would say, in the early 2000s. So I think around 2005, that's when we started actually introducing this new weird term of immuno-oncology. <laughs> and, and it's really the science that helps us uh, better understand the interaction of our own immune system uh, with cancer. Um, how do the cancer cells uh, escape from the immune surveillance uh, why, and, and even the simple question of like, why is it that some of us um, develop uh, cancer while most of us, our immune system uh, is successful in really getting rid uh, of any uh, mutated or cancerous uh, cell. So uh, it's really the science where people are spending uh, their time trying to uh, understand the um, biology of cancer the, uh, what's happening inside uh, the cancer itself, but also how the immune system is reacting 
um, and um, eliminating the cancer, and in some cases, not able to eliminate the cancer. So we're trying to understand what goes wrong so that when we're thinking about therapies, uh, we're trying to basically um, fix whatever is broken in the immune response so that the patient's own immune system uh, can fight the cancer. Okay. And how is it that immuno-oncology has only been around since 2005? Because it seems like it would be kind of an, an obvious thing to look at, the ability of the immune system to fight cancer itself. So how come it's so recent that it's kind of become a, a field? Well, so that's an interesting thing, because it, maybe I should not have said that it started to, uh, to become uh, known in, in the early 2000s, but it became more popular um, in the early 2000s. And actually, the terminology, the immuno-oncology, uh, was introduced around that time. But that doesn't mean that actually uh, immunotherapy uh, has not been in, in research uh, for, for decades before this. Um, many scientists tried to use cancer vaccines. Um, there have been some uh, approvals uh, with, with immunotherapy, but people were looking at it as a very toxic treatment that only highly uh, skilled clinicians can give that treatment to, uh, to patients. So interleukin-2 uh, and interferon are examples of, of immunotherapies uh, that were um, approved before that time, uh, but their use was very limited uh, and primarily because of the um, experience and skills that were needed to be able to offer it to patients. And actually, the interesting thing is uh, bone marrow transplant is considered as the first immunotherapy uh, oh, to okay. be offered to a patient. So um, it's but just the terminology immuno-oncology is something that was introduced because that's when we started to feel that this will become uh, one of the key pillars of cancer treatment. Ah, just so I'm, I'm sure I understand, is immuno-oncology kind of almost the opposite of chemotherapy? It sounds like they kind of do completely different things and don't necessarily work together given that chemotherapy has the ability, the habit of of kind of tanking the immune system? So at that time, like in, in the early 2000s, our thinking was, or our dream uh, was to come up with chemo-free uh, regimens. So we were really trying hard to uh, replace chemotherapy with, with immuno-oncology or immunotherapies. Um, because at that time, and again, uh, I think science keeps on evolving over time. At that time, we had exactly the same uh, understanding where chemotherapy is bad, immunotherapy is great. Let's try to figure out uh, how we can come up with those uh, chemotherapy-free regimens. But over the years, what we have learned is that not all chemotherapies um, are the same. Um, and just recently, there have been uh, clinical data that supports that the combination of immunotherapy with the right uh, chemotherapy can be very uh, synergistic. Um, and actually one of, the, um, one of the clinical trials that I was personally um, involved with um, was a study in lung cancer patients uh, where immunotherapy was given in combination with chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Um, and it turned out to be very effective and, and actually uh, it got approved a couple of years ago. So I think right now the science is suggesting that uh, we do need to do more research to uh, figure out not only what to combine with, but also uh, when 
to combine it with. I've got a couple of questions off the back of that. So talk me through a typical immunotherapy. How do you use the body's immune system to to fight cancer where it would otherwise fail? Or how do you encourage it to? Yeah. So, okay. So like, I think one of the best ways to actually describe the role of the um, immune system in eradicating cancer is you can think of our, our immune system or the patient's immune system um, as the uh, surveillance police. Um, so constantly we have immune cells that are surveying our body um, and they have been basically educated to recognize our own cells uh, versus foreign uh, cells. So, and they are very sensitive um, and to the extent that they can uh, detect a single cell uh, that has changed and is no longer looking like a cell or, uh, or the patient's own uh, cells. And in most cases, once this happens, the immune cells can actually attack this abnormal cell and get rid of it. And it's a very similar approach to viruses, to bacteria, um, our immune surveillance uh, should be able to recognize them um, early on and, and just um, eradicate them. But then there are some cases where the cancer cells um, start to act a little bit smarter. So they, they figure out uh, how the immune cells recognize them as foreign cells. Um, and then they basically start getting rid of, um, of whatever receptors are expressed on the surface of the cancer so that the immune system uh, cannot recognize them. And, and once, and that's what we call like an immune escape. Uh, that means that the cancer cell was able to escape from the immune system. Um, and once, once the escape happens, that's when the cell starts to um, reproduce um, and grow. Um, so, Part of the science and, and, and what scientists have been focusing on is to really understand this immune escape mechanism. So what happens at the cancer level or sometimes actually something gets, um, it becomes broken in the immune system itself, uh, that the immune cells do not recognize the cancer as foreign cells. Uh, so our approach with immunotherapy in general is to try to basically reset uh, this immune cancer interaction um, and either by blocking uh, something that suppresses the immune system or giving something to the tumor so that it becomes more uh, recognizable by the immune system or just striking this balance between um, the uh, the immune system getting fully activated and, and recognizing uh, the cancer and the cancer cells trying to escape from the immune system. Okay. And you say that, um, I mean, we've gone over the fact that it's research into this has been going on for, for many, many years, but it's only really become kind of an accepted pathway of treatment since uh, well, in the last kind of 15, 20 years or so. What changed in the field? Was there kind of a switch that flicked? Was there a major discovery? What suddenly brought this whole new field of medicine into kind of realistic view of, as a kind of method of treatment? I think the, the really the inflection point or the turning point was... Um, turning point's a good word. That's we, the one I was looking for. <laughs> no, it, it's, the, it's the clinical data. So uh, when we were able to show, um, and, and that was a study that was done in, in the early 2000s, and, and we got the um, uh, approval 
2011, uh, where we were able to show that with immunotherapy, we were able to actually reduce the risk of, of patients dying from cancer uh, compared to uh, available uh, treatments. And what was really um, tough at that time, that the agent, that, and, and that was a study that we did in advanced uh, melanoma, um, at that time, the only approved therapy uh, was a chemotherapy that was approved uh, 30 years ago. So literally it was approved in the, um, I think in the seventies or eighties. Mm -hmm. And since then there was no uh, progress made in, in melanoma or for advanced melanoma patients. And the study that we did, we were able to show that with immunotherapy, uh, the survival uh, of the patients uh, was much higher compared to, uh, to chemotherapy uh, treatment or any available therapy um, for that matter. And, and that's, I think, when we finally got people's attention, um, because we were always, we always actually joke about uh, those times, because um, when we used to present um, our data at some of the cancer uh, congresses, the only people who will be um, in the session are the pharma representatives, so the people who ran the clinical trial, uh, the clinical investigators who were administering the treatment to patients. Um, and maybe uh, some uh, patient advocacy groups. So the sessions used to be very poorly um, attended um, because everyone was more excited about small molecules, targeted therapies. Um, that was the, um, the focus of, of most people at, at that time. Mm. And it's only in 2011 when we finally got the uh, US uh, FDA's approval uh, for the first checkpoint inhibitor in melanoma. Um, and, and we started to get um, other scientists' attention and curiosity to also what's happening here. And, and, um, and that's when I think things have changed completely, when now more pharmaceutical companies were interested in having um, immuno-oncology as part of their pipeline. Uh, more scientists uh, started to uh, focus their research on understanding the immune cancer interaction. Um, and obviously, um, more funding uh, became available uh, for immunotherapy. And I think in 2013, uh, that was the front page of the science magazine where um, immune oncology uh, was declared as the breakthrough of the year. Fantastic. And, and from that flowed a whole kind of <laughs> new scientific field. Uh, yeah, and I think now uh, people are looking at immuno-oncology uh, as truly uh, the fourth pillar uh, of cancer treatment um, together with chemotherapy, radiation um, and, and surgery. I mean, you've been right at the centre of this, having looked at some of the work you've done before. You've been absolutely right in the middle of this emerging field for, well, since almost the beginning, I think. What's yeah. your story? How did you how did you get into science, and what kind of pushed you down the route of of not only oncology but kind of revolutionary cancer treatments? Uh, so it started in Egypt. So that's where I went to um, medical school, um, and I just got my uh, I started my my residency, um, and uh, I really liked the idea of working with with cancer patients um, because I felt that there's a huge um, unmet uh, medical needs. Um, and really the outcome of patients at that time uh, was very poor. 
Uh, so I started working uh, as a medical oncologist and I did my fellowship uh, at the National Cancer Institute. Uh, but then I realized very quickly that we haven't been making much advancement uh, with regards to available cancer treatment for, for patients. Um, and, and that's when I actually moved to, uh, to the U.S. and I joined a um, really a, a fellowship program that was offered by the uh, National Cancer Institute here in the U.S., um, and it really was geared towards uh, fellows from countries where clinical research um, is not broadly available. Um, so I came just because I wanted to learn uh, more about clinical research and, and clinical trials. Um, and I ended up, um, instead of spending uh, one or two years in, in that exchange program, I ended up spending five years uh, at the National Cancer Institute here. Um, and I've learned a lot at that time about clinical trials um, and, and, and really a different angle of cancer care uh, beyond just uh, standard of care. Um, and at that time, I realized that um, to really have a, an impact and, and be able to advance something uh, until ultimately it becomes available to patients outside of clinical trials, uh, joining uh, the pharma world. That would make sense, but that's where drug development uh, happens. Um, and that's when I made the move from academia to, uh, to industry. Um, and I think with, with some luck, uh, my first experience was actually a great experience that um, I joined a small team at that time that was working on the development of the first checkpoint. Um, and we took it all the way um, through the um, regulatory approval and it became uh, the new standard of care. So I really like that idea that you can actually see that the work that you're doing um, is directly impacting lives of many patients, uh, not just um, as an oncologist where you care after just few patients in the clinic. That's, that's great to hear that you had a positive first experience there because I imagine it must be a really grueling field. You know, you must get a lot of knockbacks, a lot of rejections, things not quite working out how you'd hoped. Uh, oh, how do you deal with that? <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and again, that's part of, of clinical research. Uh, not everything that, that we touch will end up uh, being an approved uh, treatment. Uh, but I think that's the experience that you gain over time. Um, how can you make uh, quick decisions uh, early on um, if you see that there is something that's not working? or is, is working different than what you were expecting uh, based on some of the earlier research that was done. Just out of interest, is science and medicine something you've always wanted to do or was it something that you kind of fell into? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, as a teenager boy, my dream was to become a, a scuba diving instructor. But um, okay. very quickly I realized that uh, I do need to have um, a day job and then I can continue uh, scuba diving <laughs> as a hobby. Um, but no, I, I was always very fascinated with, um, with, with human biology uh, and, and just understanding um, why certain people develop certain diseases and others don't. Uh, so I liked the science, plus I was not very good in math. So um, <laughs> I think just going into the science route made much more sense. That's interesting you say that because I'm I'm not a scientist, but I always kind of assumed that to be a scientist you'd have to you'd have to do the math side of things. 
Is that not the case? No, I never felt that I needed the mass. Obviously, with clinical trials, you absolutely uh, need to have the statistical uh, piece. Um, and, and that's why we uh, always like to surround ourselves with um, great statisticians uh, <laughs> so they can help us with the, uh, with the numbers. Um, and obviously, there are some components of the science where you do require uh, the math background, but I think statistics is one of the major areas uh, where you need to be um, knowledgeable so that you can understand how you can properly design the clinical trials. But it's all about delegation, delegating to great statisticians. Surrounding yourself <laughs> yeah. with some of the best people. Yes. <laughs> well, that brings us neatly on to you're now at BitBio. Uh-huh. So how do you go from kind of therapeutic on- oncology and immuno-oncology to the cell coding company and a company which is all about creating kind of human cell networks and and pushing that side of science. Yeah, no, so BitBio caught my attention uh, from the very early, uh, early days. Um, for the past five years, I've been the chief medical officer of the uh, Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, which is a nonprofit organization um, here in, in San Francisco that's really focusing on uh, working closely with um, really some of the best um, scientists to help them advance their discoveries and research and, and really helping with turning uh, those discoveries into medicines for, uh, for patients. So our focus has been on cell therapy because um, obviously um, a few years ago, um, cell therapy um, really showed great uh, efficacy and, and, and clinical activity in patients with hematological malignancies. Um, but then we haven't been able to get the same level of, uh, of activity for patients with solid tumors. Uh, hematological malignancy, that's blood cancers, is that right? Rather that's blood tumors. Okay. Absolutely. Just, just double checking. I know, I know the yeah. word hemo. The hemo is blood. Good, we got that. <laughs> Yep. Uh, so a lot of research has been focusing on how can we leverage uh, cell therapy um, and, and really turn it into an effective therapy uh, for solid tumors. So part of doing this, uh, there have been a lot of technologies that have been developed um, to really introduce some genetic uh, edits uh, for some of the immune cells that we use for cell therapy. Um, and, and what caught my attention about BitBio is that while most companies um, are focusing on developing those technologies um, that allow the, the um, editing um, of the cell therapies, BitBio focused on the cell itself. So BitBio platform um, really mastered the control of the um, pluripotent stem cells and the ability to direct uh, those stem cells to uh, change into a different uh, cell type. Um, and, and we can actually control the uh, type of that cell. So I like the idea that they are really look, focusing on the fundamental piece of cell therapy, which is the cell itself, mm. um, and the ability to reliably um, and at a scale uh, generate those cells. Um, so it reminded me so much of the... Um, immuno-oncology field um, early on, uh, where it was still early days, um, there was still, uh, or actually there is still um, 
questions around the field of uh, pluripotent stem cells. Uh, can you use it for human diseases? Uh, can you generate enough cells uh, that, that will allow uh, for the therapy to be effective? Uh, so it's still early days, but the available data uh, is really very encouraging that um, I felt that I want to be part um, of this and hopefully um, transform uh, patient care using the pluripotent stem cells. Fantastic. And I should just uh, clarify as well for anyone who hasn't seen the, the previous two episodes of, uh, of this mini-series, a pluripotent stem cell is a stem cell that can be turned into any human cell. Is that right? That is very correct, yes. Excellent. So, uh, <laughs> yes. So from your perspective as an immuno-oncologist, having kind of reliable stem cells, is that more of a benefit for treatment or more of a benefit for, you know, creating scalable tests for new treatments? Is it, is it more kind of the, the diagnosis, the development of treatments, or the actual curing itself is a shorter way of asking the question? <laughs> um, and I think the short answer is it's all of the above, right? If you, if okay. you think about <laughs> it, um, our technology allows for generating uh, reliable cells. And by reliable, uh, it means um, not only that you control the cell type, but also if there are uh, subtypes uh, within that particular uh, cell, we can uh, control this. We can control the maturity. Do we want fully mature cells? Do we want immature cells? So having this ability uh, to, to really control how the um, pluripotent stem cell uh, turns into a cell of interest uh, is key. And then doing it at scale, uh, because there are other technologies that can um, allow for the uh, pluripotent stem cells to differentiate into a cell of interest. Uh, but one of the limitations of those other approaches uh, is the scalability uh, piece. And, and then sometimes it takes a very long time mm. uh, to be able to get uh, the cell of interest. So with our approach, uh, we can do it quickly and in a few days versus months. Uh, we can do it with a very high yield. Uh, so we have um, abundance of the cells uh, that we are interested in. And, and it's very reproducible. So if, if we solve that problem, now there's the question of, okay, what do you use um, those human cells uh, in? So one, one approach would be uh, to use the human cells for research, because um, one of the biggest limitations now um, in the early research is having reliable um, animal models that replicate, uh, or at least are close enough um, to humans. So having a reliable, human cell that can be used in research um, can be transformative. And, and to your earlier question about like failure um, in clinical trials, if we can have more robust uh, basic research, then this ultimately would lead to um, only the effective therapies uh, or the therapies with the potential to be effective reaching the clinic and then the failure rate in the clinic will be lower and that means we're exposing less patients um, to uh, less effective therapies. Mm. And then the second is uh, one of the biggest uh, hurdles in, in drug development um, is doing the toxicology uh, studies and do it um, in a species that's relevant to humans. So if we can have 
um, the human cells uh, being used um, in that toxicology experiments, uh, then also this will eliminate some drugs that could potentially be harmful uh, to okay. patients from entering uh, the clinic. And then the third piece would be um, the clinical uh, trials or actually using those human cells as therapeutics uh, for different diseases. Um, and here, the, the applications are really um, unlimited, uh, but in many cases, especially when it comes to uh, degenerative diseases, uh, what's broken is usually the cell. So if you have a, a tool that can allow you to replace um, the unhealthy cells with healthy uh, cells, um, then this can actually be relevant in, in many diseases. So just how quickly do you think we'll see actual actual treatments and kind of measurable research benefits coming from, from BitBio's work and the work that you're doing here? So at BitBio, we are very um, committed to, uh, to really um, taking some of those cells um, into uh, clinical trials uh, in the next couple of years. So uh, obviously, the work that's needed um, so that we can all have confidence uh, around the safety and efficacy of those cells uh, it's huge before you enter uh, the clinic, uh, but we are very committed that we want to uh, to start exploring uh, some of those cells in the clinic um, in the next couple of years. And, and part of this, we obviously have to um, engage with regulators uh, to make sure uh, that we hear their input uh, early on, uh, given obviously that they have uh, access to um, many other uh, approaches that could potentially be similar to what we're trying to do at Bitbuy. Okay, and I probably should have asked this earlier, so so please forgive me. As the the medical director, what exactly is is your role? Are you there to kind of facilitate the journey through the clinical trials, or kind of steer the company towards them? What in this context, what what is your job? <laughs> yeah, I should have asked that right at the beginning, really, shouldn't I? That's... Come, interesting question to come at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, now, so my role is really um, to sit with the scientists, really understand from them um, what they are doing at, at the preclinical or at the research uh, level, um, and then we try to address a couple of questions. Uh, one would be, uh, what's the applicability of that research for human diseases? So this really allows us to start narrowing down um, the, um, the indications that we will go in. And then we work with the translational medicine team, uh, which is the team that does the, uh, the work that is needed before we can declare that something is ready to be taken into the clinic. Um, and, and then lastly, we design the uh, clinical trials uh, that will allow us to uh, start testing um, those new products um, in humans. Uh, and obviously, one of the most important things for us to uh, or that we pay attention to uh, is ensuring patient safety, because mm -hmm. we are using obviously investigational therapies. So we want to make sure uh, that we're doing everything in our capacity uh, so that we're not subjecting patients uh, to um, any um, any harm. Fantastic. Do you think, going going back slightly to what we were talking about before, do you think that there are any kind of cancers that are out of reach for cell therapies like the ones that BitBio are working on? Are there any which 
we just either don't understand enough or just kind of don't work that way because people think of cancer as, as one disease and it's kind of it's not at all is it it's a whole different class of diseases oh no absolutely cancer is a very heterogeneous uh, disease and even within a cancer type uh, there are uh, now more subtypes that we are discovering and it's not just based on the um, histology or the shape of the cells it's, it's all about also the um, what's happening within the microenvironment of the tumor. Uh, some of them um, have ways to severely suppress um, the immune response in the cancer and others, they can escape. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, look, we really need to um, focus on the biology of the disease that we're dealing with. And that's not just limited to cancer, but in any other disease. Mm. Um, understanding the biology of the disease is key for us to be able to come up with the appropriate cell type that would be relevant uh, for that particular disease. Are there any which, at the moment, just because of the way they, they work, you don't think that we'd be able to treat with cell therapies? Well, we are starting to see uh, really some um, encouraging um, early data that suggests that uh, there will be a role of, of cell therapy um, beyond just hematological uh, malignancies. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be um, easy. Uh, because again, we are dealing with a complex uh, disease and a complex biology. And, and definitely, it's not going to be uh, one size fits all. Mm. Uh, each um, cancer will need to have a, um, a different um, approach uh, that would be really tailored uh, towards the biology of that particular uh, cancer. And the same apply to other uh, diseases beyond, uh, beyond cancer. Really, I think that's that's absolutely brilliant. The only thing uh, I've got to ask is what happens next. <laughs> no, I think for 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 us, uh, there are two things that we want to do. Um, one is what my team is working on, which is really showing that using uh, pluripotent stem cells or the iPSCs um, is uh, is a, is an approach that can be used for therapeutics, and that's what we want to show in the next couple of years but also building a pipeline of different cell types uh, that will be ready so that whenever there's a new disease uh, that we would like to tackle, uh, we have those cells uh, ready that we can use. So um, I am very excited uh, about the uh, potential. I'm very excited about the team uh, that we've built at, at BitBio. And obviously, most of all, look, I'm really thrilled about the scientists that we were able to uh, attract uh, to the organization. Thank you so much. That's been an absolute pleasure. It's absolutely fascinating talking to you, Rami. That was, that was brilliant. No, I was going to say awesome. No, that was great. That was easy. Thank you so much, Dr. Rami Ibrahim. What a fascinating chap and amazing work he and the BitBio team are doing. If you're interested in learning more about the company, you can find them at www.bit.bio. Nice and easy to remember that one. And do check out the other two episodes in this mini-series. Meanwhile, for more information on Pint of Science in the UK, head to www.pintofscience.co.uk and if you're listening from elsewhere in the world, go to www.pintofscience.com for details of events and goings-on in your country. We'll see you again soon.